Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. We missed last week. Um, Jesse did have a child uh, born into this world, little Henry. So congratulations, Jesse. You're, you're missed over here at the Talk Junkies, man. Wish the best for you and your family, man. And uh, we got Carl and Johnny in the house. We're going to rock it out in, in Jesse's honor. Yeah. It's been a, I saw Henry today. I saw little baby Henry today. Oh, did you? For the first time, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I need to go. I need to meet him. I need to go check it out and see what's going on. Um, if you're interested, two weeks ago we did talk about how is it insane how much the U.S. spends on military, and then we went a little bit into universal health care. Before I start the podcast real quick, I did want to say I did send you guys a link. There are some extremely long wait times for health care in Canada. I was going to talk to you about that not on the podcast, but another time, just once I did some more research. From what I was looking on that, that all had to deal with, like, only the very serious, like, that was for, like, on call, like, cancer stuff and stuff like that, not, like... I don't think anybody's going in there with like um, a bullet hole and they're being like, oh, yeah, we're not, right, right. not going to treat you, you know, I just, or like a broken leg or whatever. I was, whenever they're I, like, oh, we're not going to put a cast on you for like for sure. um, two months. Uh, just reading the article, though, I just I just wanted to say, like, I, I, I'm i sorry to all the listeners out there that I didn't do all the research first. You yeah, know we, didn't, we didn't do our due, due yeah. diligence. So, there, yeah, we'll get into that to another podcast. But tonight's going to be a very interesting night. Like I said earlier, uh, we have the pleasure of bringing a guest on this evening. And no better time to have him on, honestly, because right now with inflation the way it is, it's absolutely crazy. When you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, all these things combined. Being an adult, and, and I remember in 2008, <clears throat> whenever we had the uh, the housing crash, I didn't really understand when gas hit four dollars and seventeen cents. Like I didn't really. Oh, I, I did. I didn't really. <laughs> I didn't really register it. I had an S10. I got thirty miles to the gallon, I think, or something like that. Whatever. I, I just didn't even care. But now that I'm an adult and I see it, I don't recall if. And we'll get into this in the podcast. I don't recall if it lasted as long as it has right now. But anyways, we're going to uh, let the guests join the show. Kevin, uh, thanks for joining, man. appreciate you joining the show. Uh, how are you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for joining, man. Um, get a little bit into your journey, man, and how you've ended up where you are today. Well, it's, thanks for asking. You know, I've been in this business for almost 30 years right now. I started off coming out of college. I thought I was going to become a psychologist. And I finished my master's. And next thing you know, it, I got a job one summer working for a Wall Street firm. And I thought, you know what? I'll just take a look and see what's going on with this. Great job experience, if anything else. And I'll be back in school in the fall, finishing my PhD. And it was one of those things where, you know, when you got into the financial markets, you realized it really is based on psychology and what people think and what people do. And, you know, the more I really understood how things worked, the more I realized that I had the perfect degree for what we're dealing with. You know, all the books in the world can't tell you how to be a money manager, fiscally responsible, understanding interest rates, inflation, and so forth. So my journey has been one of those ones where I've learned a lot as time's gone on. Unfortunately, I have 30 years into this, so I've seen the recessions. I've seen the dot-com crash. I've seen the financial markets in 1994 when the CMOs, Colorado's mortgage obligations fail. And, and then you go into the Great Depression of 2008, 9, 10. So you learn a lot and you conceptualize where this market's headed, what's happened, and you try to carry that knowledge forward. So tonight when you guys were talking about healthcare, you know, the healthcare is one of those things where, you know, it's con consistently changing. There's trying to find a solution, but there really is no solution until we all pay the kind of price of that we, we, we certain concessions where the individual have to pay for. 
But going on to the financial markets and what we do and how I do it and my group we do, we like to look at the market and see what's going on in terms of financial conditions around the world, what's happening here in the United States. We try to extrapolate that information and we try to forecast what might happen as we go forward. So what's happening in the United States right now? You know, it's kind of interesting. As I said, it's 30 plus years for me is that we have things that we haven't seen in a long time. We have inflation at a 40-year high. And it's not just the United States. We have global inflation, which we haven't seen for 40 years either. The start of this year, we've had the stock market down and the bond market down, which hasn't happened since 1947. Up until last week, we had the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 down eight continuous weeks. That hasn't happened since 1923. So there's a lot of things that are going on right now, not to mention what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, the China lockdown. So people are trying to really see where this information is going to affect what we do here, not just on a domestic scale, but global. And, you know, for the first time in a very long time, the market's very uncertain. That's why you see the, you know, the markets go up, go down. And the volatility that we're seeing is, is that one thing the markets could handle is information if they know which way it's going, whether financially we know that the banks are strong or financially if we know tech companies are strong or we know there's going to be you know a lot of inflation or we know that interest rates are going to go up or down. Markets understand how to deal with that. But we are understanding right now is that we have a lot of things in play that not just here in the United States, but globally, they're affecting how the world's going. So every time we get a piece of information out, like the jobs report on Friday, or we're projecting what the CPI is going to be, so many people are holding on to that, just that little piece of key data is a driver for what's going to happen around the world. And this is not something that most people are used to. So when you look at the markets right now, it's really hard for the guy who's been here for 30 years, five years, 10 years, 60 years to really extrapolate that information and figure out where the economy is, not just the U.S., but globally. Can we find out where it started, though? I mean, like, was it was it was a lot of this due to COVID, the beginning stages of COVID? Is this why we are where we are today? Because you had a lot of stimulus packages. I don't I'm not entirely sure if it was close to what six, six to ten trillion dollars that was printed in a two year span. I mean, that has to have a, a role in it, doesn't it? Well, you know, COVID was kind of the devil edged sword. It was good and bad. It was bad for a lot of companies that were trying to produce goods that couldn't. And it was good for the economists and the people out there who wanted to take that money and use it for things that they didn't have before. So there's the, again, when I say double-edged sword, it's like, you know, we, we're paying the price right now with inflation. But during COVID, the people are able to survive. So the, the ability to understand what's happened is very difficult because there's two sides of the fence. They're the ones who need it, who got it, and the ones who didn't want it to be given or having to deal with it, right? For example, we have what they call supply deficiency, meaning that like in the semiconductors, we can't get the chips in order to build the new cars. So we can't get the new cars, so that way we have used car prices going higher. Last year, the used car prices were up 23 24%. Over the last three years, you had used car prices going up 50%. But then when you have a new car, you can't mark that up 50%. So it throws a real wrench into the whole system. And that's what, we, you know, just a small example of what we're dealing with right now in the financial markets 
is that there's a lot of things that are out of whack right now and trying to forecast what they might really be is hard to do because you really don't know what's going to happen. Use China, for example, right now. They've been in lockdown and we really, really depend on China for multiple things and not having those ability to receive those goods from China is really given us kind of, again, I use that term, the monkey wrench in our economy because we can't purchase or manufacture what we need to do. So there's demand and that's called, you know, what we're seeing is the government wants what they call demand destruction. I'm kind of jumping a little bit forward, meaning that that once prices get to a certain point, people just won't pay for them. You have a Fed right now who wants to raise interest rates. You have people out there who are struggling. For example, if you go to Walmart and you buy a bag of shredded cheese, three months ago, two months ago, it was 277. Now it's 398. These are the basic things that we're looking at, but those things that we're seeing affect the, you know, the average person every single day. So that's going to create a slowdown. Now, is that a slowdown really good for the economy or bad? And that's what the Fed's trying to figure out, Wall Street bankers are trying to figure out, and the world in general are trying to figure out. So then whenever you go from from just the, the printing of money in COVID to, it, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, whenever COVID happened, weren't we, were we not stockpiling oil? And, and, and if that's the case, then why do we, in, and I'm not sure entirely how many barrels of oil we stockpiled during that time, because I remember the barrels were close to zero dollars whenever COVID well, was going on. But why all of a sudden, I mean, is it really Russia? You know what I'm saying? Or is it the Biden administration? Why are we, is it just all of this in, combined? Is that why we're seeing the inflation with oil as well? That's a great question. You know, the thing with the oil is, is that if you look back at the timeline of oil, it's a very cyclical, meaning that it's a really demand supply issue and what we've done over the years and how we've produced, how we've non-produced. And it really goes starting really back to the early 2000s when different ideas of how to produce oil, whether it be fracking, whether it be offshore drilling, it's really come into play in how companies spend their money. Well, companies have what they call a capital expenditure, meaning that how much they're going to put towards drilling or bringing oil to the market. And with that drilling and everything else they've been doing over the years, it's always based on demand. Now, when we talked about COVID, is you had all these oil companies producing, 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 because we had a strong economy. You know, you look at when we had the Great Depression, and people always think about you know, the 1920s Great Depression. What the Great Depression really was is the loss of physical assets, financial assets, and well-being and jobs. And that happened between 2008, 9, and 10. In 2011, we started what they call a, a really historic bull market. And so during that time frame, that money was being used to produce more, manufacture more, which cost, you know, oil, natural gas, and so forth. And that kind of drove the price higher and higher. Well, when COVID happened, the world shut down. But at the same time, you had all these oil companies producing, you know, as fast as they possibly could in order to meet the demand. Well, with the demand basically hit a brick wall, these companies kept producing, 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 not knowing what the outcome of COVID was going to be. And with COVID, there were so many uncertainties because no one's ever experienced it. So there is these forecasts that's going to last two months, three months, six months. Trump saying, hey, you know what? We're not going to have any problems here in the United States. So a lot of these companies kept producing, producing. And then when they hit that brick wall, you actually saw the futures market basically turn negative, meaning that the oil companies were paying these repositories, hey, take our oil. We're willing to pay you to take it because we can't handle it because we have nowhere to ship it. So 
you had that buildup of oil and the, 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 the bad part, the bad part about this was is that why oil prices were cheap, gas prices were cheap. One person had to pay for all this. And this was the oil companies. You know, they had all these people unemployed, employed to produce this oil. They had all these places where they were storing their oil and they couldn't do anything about it. So a lot of these companies went billions of billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars in debt globally to try to offset this demand versus loss and supply issue versus not having enough demand. So now we get to the point we are right now, these oil companies saying, hey, we're not going to produce this oil that the world needs right now for two reasons. One is we don't have the employees, meaning that if you had all our workers at Chevron, they'd have to go over to Exxon in order to produce what they want. There's just not enough at the people. The second thing is, is that they don't want to put themselves at risk in case there's a COVID global slowdown. There's a global slowdown with, between Russia. Who knows what happens if Russia says, hey, we're going to have a ceasefire with Ukraine. And everybody says, okay, we'll tuck Russian oil. So everybody's really cautious about what they produce and not. And that supply-demand issue is the beneficial benefactor it being the actual shareholder of these companies. They would rather take the money that they're making off oil right now and give it to the shareholder of Exxon, you know, whether it be uh, Chevron, whether it be Occidental Petroleum, you know, and so forth. They're paying the shareholders the money to invest in their companies versus lowering the oil prices because they're not going to put that themselves in that position where they're going to take a big loss going forward. And that's where you allow, a lot of the people are talking about these oil companies are bad. They're controlling what's going on. They're really not controlling what's going on. The fact is that they're mitigating their potential financial losses that they're still recovering from from three years ago. I haven't heard it put that way, honestly. <laughs> it's perfect. It's nice seeing the other side of it because it's we've – we argue about that a lot here, or not argue, I should say, we talk a lot about like how are how are these companies making, you know, record profits, but they're not able to pay wages and do all this different stuff, and how is their inflation when they're making more profits than they've made in the past, so it's good to hear someone who actually knows what they're talking about, talking about the other side of things. Yeah. Well, you from a business perspective, okay, these companies nearly went bankrupt trying to produce what the government wanted them to produce, and then when it went negative there was no stimulus package for the oil companies per se. They were for the individuals. So what happened is they had these companies had to stockpile so much oil and natural gas that they were the ones who were at risk. And being a shareholder of those companies, hey, my stock's going from 100 to $20 or 15 or $10 a share. I thought I was getting an 8% yield or 10% yield. And all of a sudden, what I thought was a safe investment becomes very risky. So what you're seeing is these oil companies saying, hey, wait, our shareholders, the people who believe in us the last time around, we did whatever we wanted us to say we, they wanted us to do, they lost. So we're going to make sure we protect them and protect ourselves this time around. And I know that that really not, feels good for the guy who's paying, you know, four fifty, six bucks, whatever it is, be $10, what they're talking about in Seattle right now per gallon. But in the, sense, the flip side is that no one thought about these oil companies when they were losing money. And it's really a conundrum because this market, this time we're in right now, everybody feels like, hey, oil's prices should be down. The government should be controlling inflation. Well, the only thing the government can do is control inflation from the demand side. They can't control it from the supply side. 
You know, there's a reason why they call the Ukraine the breadbasket of the world. They supply almost 30% of the grains around the world. If they can't ship those grains, you know what? Prices are going to go higher. It's not because the U.S. is doing something or not doing some of these other countries. It's the fact is that there is a supply issue. And that's something, no matter how much you jack up interest rates and how many try to change it, you can't control oil and you cannot control commodities. That's just not something that's going to happen. So what we're trying to do as a government is saying, hey, we're going to raise inflation so we get what they call demand destruction, I mentioned earlier, and that will hopefully slow down the economy. Well, demand destruction is really bad for the individual who lives paycheck to paycheck, who's hoping that they're going to receive tips or they're going to do whatever they're doing because it doesn't help those people at all. What it's going to do is it's going to give that greater degree of gap between the, the people who have money that don't have money. And, you know, this is the way we're going right now. And it's a really hard line to follow because there's casualties on both sides. How sustainable is that, right? I mean, how long can we, uh, how long can we last in an, envi- an environment like that before you have the everyday person who can't afford to live this way um, you know, which, which is the majority, right? I'd like to point that For out. Sure, I mean, yeah. It's like what 60% of Americans don't have but, more you know, than 600 in their bank account or whatever, or right. live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Like, okay. But this is, but this is where it comes down to me. You can you get the whole conspiracy theory, or you want to talk about politics. You want to talk about economics. You know, the fact is the government could open up the Keystone XL pipeline. They can't do it today or tomorrow, but Biden didn't want to do that because of the greenhouse effects and the greener economy. Sometimes the political administration has to admit that, hey, this isn't working. We're going to have to go against what we said and make changes. And that's what people call political suicide. And the fact is that government could do that, but they don't want to do it. And I'm not by any way a conspiracy or anything at all. The fact is we have the ability to make certain changes here in the United States. The United States is now the producer of natural gas who's larger than anybody else around the world. This didn't happen before. We have ships from a company, company called Accelerate who could pr- provide natural gas to literally countries and cut off Russia. And there's, so there's so many political and economic dynamics that it's just a matter of policy change, either A, good, or B, bad. They're going to make the difference. And that's what we have to deal with on a daily basis. Does someone admit they were wrong about what they wanted to do? Do someone concede about what they want to be? Or really what comes down to is, is that, hey, sometimes you're wrong and you got to do what's right. And that's really what we're coming down to. When you talk about inflation, you know, we can't really control if Ukraine can't ship uh, its wheat out. OK, we, we can't do that. But the United States can ship gas. We could ship natural gas. We have the ability to put LNG in other countries at a quick basis. So. No, we have all these things. It's just a matter of what we choose to do as a country here right now abroad versus, you know, some foreign country and how we take that information, take that knowledge, take the supplies, take the demand. You know, it's it's really kind of interesting how this thing's really going to play out. You know, the, com- the companies here the based in the United States are going to protect their shoulders. They're going to protect what they can as a company. But it's a matter of does the government want to give concessions to these companies in order to produce more and knowing that at the end of the day, there's a put in there, meaning that no matter how bad things are going to be, you have support that's going to help, you know, give them the ability to do the things that they want to do. I want to, I want to backtrack a little bit to something you said earlier, just while it's still fresh in my mind, 
you talking about the the oil companies like taking care of their shareholders and paying them out because a couple of years ago, you know, COVID and everything, they were at a loss and they were taking a loss. And you talked about the whole, their shareholders being like, hey, this is, you know, talking about share prices going down like 20 bucks instead of 60 bucks or whatever. And being like, hey, we're at a higher risk here. This isn't, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, that kind of thing. I still, and this is just my, my ignorance coming out on the whole thing. I still never understood because I feel like most of these investments are long-term investments and I feel like the stock market has always come back up. So I've never understood the whole, like, I guess I'm, I'm asking you to kind of spell it out for me where the fear comes from. Because if I have, if all my stocks plummet, for example, during COVID, everything plummeting and dropping, I'm like, yeah, that's when I buy more because I know that the economy is going to recover. I know that these stocks are solid stocks and that they're going to go back up, you know, especially big companies like that like oil and, you know, and tech like Microsoft and Apple and all this stuff. I'm like, I know it's going to go back up. I'm only losing money if I sell. You know what I mean? Like if I sell right now, that's when I'm losing my money because I'm selling under what I bought it for. But if I just wait and weather the storm. So I guess I'm just asking you to give me their side of things where they are scared about the risk or whatever. Sure. I mean, that's, and that's you know, a great fundamental approach to take when you look at a stock market, you buy low, sell high. Well, when you take a look at oil and commodity prices, that's a little bit of a different animal in the sense that it's based on demand and supply. Now, when you take a look at oil, just because the stock goes down doesn't always mean it's a great buy. It really depends on what's being used and how it's being used. And when you look at, like, say, for example, Exxon, you know, Exxon pays out dividends to their shareholders based on how much money they make. So it's really based on how much oil producing, how much they sell, and what their net profit's going to be. Now, you can take a look at like towards like technology, healthcare, biotech. You really don't have to have earnings in order for your stock to go higher. It's just the belief that's going to go higher based on what they've predicted in the future, meaning that they might have a drug that gets to FDA approval. They might have a new microchip or a semiconductor chip that's going to revolutionize things for Apple or so forth. It's going to make their iPhone run further. You know, when you look at commodities, it's really more cut and dry than most products that you see or most companies in the stock market you see. It's like just because they're down, you don't buy it. You know, with oil, natural gas, you have to base on price of where it is right now versus demand in the future. Valid point. And I guess that's where I need to learn more because I have never dealt with any kind of like everything I'm invested in. I don't think there's other than obviously the big like, you know, like the uh, S&P 500 and the Dow Jones and like the S&P growth fund and all this different stuff. Other than that, like, I don't think I have anything that's commodity based. So I don't know much about well, that side of things. You know, and that's a great point you just brought up about what's commodity based. You know, you take a look at the stock market, right? And it used to be that oil and gas represented 25 to 30% of the S&P 500. Up until about a month or two ago, it was only 4% of the S&P 500. Some statistics have it 2.5%, some up to 5%, 6%. So it gives you an idea of what those companies can earn and what basically that if you look at the S&P 500, what percentage they could be going in the future. You know, the one thing that you see that has been going higher over the last year is energy. The fact is there is a limited supply of gas and oil. There is a limited supply of uh, LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, you know, especially with what's going on in Russia and some of these other countries. So people are moving more towards these commodity-based products because they know that they have strong earnings. They know that there's a demand and there's not enough supply. 
So by buying these particular products, you know, these companies are making money, like for Exxon, you know, they're making money at 45, 50 bucks a barrel. I think tonight gas oil's up a dollar fifty, almost a hundred and twenty. So for the next seventy dollars between the fifty and the hundred and twenty, these companies are making mega profits. So you see a lot of people are saying, hey, you know what? I'd rather go with a company that's making profits in this market, a sustained, you know, ability to continue to make profits versus what's gonna happen to the supply chain issue. Like for example, Ford can't get semiconductor ships. So you see a really a diverse economy taking place. And this is really the first time in probably the last 15 years that people have to be strategic in how they invest, you know, their money, because instead of just buying S&P 500, hoping it goes higher, you have to really pick and choose the companies who could basically go through inflation, price out things, pass those costs on to customers and really weather the storm. And that's really a trajectory that most people who have only been in this market 15, 20 years, they've never seen before. But that doesn't last forever, right? I mean, eventually, don't you think we get back to somewhat normal to what the start stock market was like at some point? Or is this kind of the, the future of what the stock market's going to be where you kind of well, have to pick and choose? That's a great question. If you take a look at the last 10 years, it's been all about growth. You take the last 60 years, it's been about value. So we could be having a dynamic market sh you know, shift. We don't really, the problem is you don't really know what's right or wrong until you get into the future and look 10 years back. But the fact is, is that value has always performed better than growth up until 2010. Okay. So when you look at something, would you rather buy something a multiple of three or four growing at 8% versus a company who has a negative multiple and growing at 20, 30%. And they talk a lot about on CNBC right now that, you want to buy companies that have earnings and you want to buy a company that has a multiple that's low. So, you know, you go out there and look, you could buy, you know, United States Steel trading at four times earnings. You could buy Toll Brothers three times earnings, you know, Home Builder. Does that necessarily mean you're buying a great company? No, you're just buying a company with a low multiple based on what's happening now. If we go into a recession, things really slow down, you know, those multiples go up. So it's really, again, going back to what I was saying, this is going to become more of a stock picker's market than we've seen before. You have to really laser focus on what each individual company is doing versus what the sector is doing or the overall group, the S&P 500, because this might change. And everybody talks about Apple being the biggest company in the world and Apple's the, basically the driving force of the NASDAQ. Well, we don't know what Apple's doing considering what's happening in Shanghai right now and all these Chinese you know, countries. And the slowdown, if Apple comes out and says, hey, we're going to drop 20% in earnings, that's going to take the whole NASDAQ down. Now, that doesn't mean a company like Chevron or Exxon is going to go down. So you have to kind of pick and choose when you have these weaknesses in the market, what companies are making and monies and what's not. Another example, NVIDIA, semiconductor chip. We know NVIDIA from laptops, from gaming, you know, and data centers. They just came out and raised their guidance. Lululemon said, hey, we're going to have better earnings than we expected. CrowdStrike, a, uh, an internet security firm, came out and said, we're going to have better earnings. So look at what's going on around you, but really you need to specify on individual areas that are great for your portfolio values and what you want to do going forward. You want to be conservative, you might not want those. If you want to be aggressive, you might. But we're really at a, an economy in terms of 
what to expect versus past versus forward. And that's where a lot of people are going to have to do a little bit more research if they manage their own money and really think this thing out more than normal because not everything's going to go up like the old days. Fair enough. That's kind of, I guess, and that's, I was going to say, and that's new for me because I am very much new into the, you know, very young in this whole game. Like, so all I've known is like what you were talking about the market since, you know, 2010, where it's been a growth market and it's all been, I mean, I remember getting into, uh, about two years before it was probably like 2018. Yeah. Like two years before COVID getting into like trading options and messing around with that for the first time. And we're talking, we're talking very small potatoes, you know what I mean? But it was, it seemed so incredibly easy to make money. Like I made a ridiculous on options trading, made a ridiculous return rate, like insane. It was crazy. The amount of money that, I mean, I just started off with a thousand dollars and, and escalated that, you know, over tenfold. And I was like, this seems way too easy, you know, for someone who doesn't really know what they're doing. Like, and then obviously COVID kind of changed all that around. I haven't been able to figure it out since then, but. Well, what's happening is everybody could buy Amazon, everybody could buy Google, everybody could buy Netflix, everybody could buy Apple, everybody could buy Microsoft, and they went higher. Okay. Everything just kind of went up in unison. And that's the difference. What you're seeing right now is the fact that not everything's going to open unison like a dip. People have to say, okay, I have Fang. You know, Fang is basically Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Now, out of those five, which ones are the better? Okay. Yet Netflix, for the first time ever, said, hey, we were minus 200,000 people in the last quarter. Their stock dropped almost 50%. Well, it's dropped a lot more than that. It's like 60, 70% from its high. You have Google, you know, who said, hey, you know, business is great. You had Meta come out, which is now the Facebook, and said, hey, things are slowing down. So each of these things, you got to go out there. You can't just buy the group. And buying options are great. You could buy an option some. Didn't matter what it was. As long as those stocks went higher, it dragged the whole market going forward. Now you're starting to see people diversify, not buying those particular ones and coming to different areas. So maybe we don't have Fang anymore. Maybe we have Mang. Maybe it's Microsoft. Maybe it's Amazon, maybe it's uh, NVIDIA, you know, there's other companies that might take those places. And again, that's the whole thing that people are going through right now is like, what are we going to get out of this? You know, not just six months, but a year or two years down the road. So, so before we go in a little bit into that, I know, Johnny, you wanted to kind of segue into just like it, just like maybe uh, investing for beginners type of thing. Um, but, I, but before we get into that, Kevin, I just I want to do an overall wrap-up of the first like 30 minutes of the podcast, and I just want to get your overall opinion of where you see the market in, let's say, five to 10 years. And um, I guess maybe add a little bit. So you think that, and I think I asked you this, because uh, if you don't know, I met Kevin at where I work at, and I'm very thankful that Kevin came onto the show. We got another 30 minutes with him. Um, where do you, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I remember I asked you that the other night, and you said yes, but then we didn't get a chance to talk about that more so. So, so there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I think, I think the thing is you got to look at it this way. If you're a young individual, putting money in anything else except stocks is foolhardy, meaning that you're never going to get the, we're going to beat the inflation. You have to be able to invest in the companies that are going to prosper, whether the economy's good or bad. And you can't do that in the bond market. You can't do that in cash. Right now we're running an 8% inflation rate. So, if you keep yourself in cash, you're really minus 8% a year. So you really have to think about what the U.S. economy, worldwide economy is going to do moving forward. And the market provides an excellent opportunity. 
Now, some people say, hey, I want to pick my individual stock. Or there's people say, hey, you know what? I'd rather just bet on the best 500 stocks out there or I'll let a mutual fund you know, manage my money for you. You know, that's still the best course going forward for most people. Now, if you're 85 years old, you need the money and you can't afford to lose it, you know, it's a different story. But overall, the best growth year in, year out, over decade, over decade. And I mean, I, I could even use centuries, you know, because going back to the earliest investments in the 1700s, 1600s, is the stock market. It's going to provide an opportunity that you don't have. Now, going back to what I said is that if you don't have the ability to manage each individual stock and really put yourself out to it, you know, in terms of buying and selling, knowing everything that's going on, you let someone else manage your money. You know, you look at the S&P 500. By far, that's basically beat 80%, 75% of money managed the last 25, 30 years. S&P 500, you're buying the biggest and best. You're buying your Amazon. You're buying your Google. You're buying your Apple. You're buying your Microsoft. So all these companies you want to own. You could buy in one particular S&P 500 fund, and every six months, based on the size of these companies, it gets rebalanced. So there's a lot of opportunities out there that you don't have to really stress yourself out and say, oh, my God, what am I doing? Just know this. The younger you are, gives you the more opportunity to grow your money. There's a rule out there called the rule of 72. You take whatever you think your interest rate is going to be per year and divide that into 72, and that tells you how many years it'll take to double your money. Now, you take the bond market and what it's doing You know, over the years, it's not been a great investment. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, it was great. You know, I, My college has paid for zero coupons, bonds that were averaging 8 9%. We haven't seen that since the 1990s, and we're probably never going to see that anytime soon. So you look at where you want to be and say, if, okay, if I get 8% of my money, every nine years my money will double. Okay, you're not going to get that in the bond market. So you really have to think, as Paul was just saying, as being a long-term investor, where do I really want to be and not touch it? And again, going out with certain mutual funds, S&P funds, and so forth, achieve those goals and have money. You just can't look at it on a day-to-day basis or year-by-year basis. You kind of have to look at it like when Paul and I were talking about his kids. You know, your dollar cost average every month in the S&P 500. You're getting the 500 best companies in the United States has to offer. And you put that money, whether it be going up or going down, your overall return through a longer period of time, you're going to make a lot more money doing that than anything else. So when did you see that? Like whenever you were, whenever you first went into Wall Street and you started seeing these things and you were exposed to how this works, and again, and I guess we're kind of segue into here. And I'm, I, I'm a beginner myself when it comes to investing money. So, um, when did you finally see it? I mean, obviously being exposed to it helped you, but it didn't happen, you know, like with a snap of a finger. It took you time. I mean, like you said, you've been 30 years, Kevin. Like the way that you're breaking this down, man. Like a lot of people can understand. No, no offense, man. You're fucking doing an amazing job. But let's break it down. This, this, just this last half of the podcast, and let's make it easy for people on on how to invest, and and maybe kind of go through your story if you can a little bit on how you kind of went on your journey into what the financial market is. Well, I had a crash course, in which so it puts me at an advantage and everybody else at a disadvantage, where I had to learn a lot of information in a short amount of time in order to pass my Series Seven and a bunch of uh, securities license. That you had to have a better over understanding of how things work. You know, growing up, I didn't really think much about it. My dad did well. He was a surgeon and so forth, invested his money. I used to see the Wall Street Journal around the house, Money Magazine, Forbes, and all these different things, Fortune. 
you know, I, I could care less about looking at them. I'd, I'd maybe flip through and say, oh, this is kind of cool and so forth. I knew about Intel. I knew about Microsoft. But, you know, you, you looked at it, you didn't really think much about it because most people really don't. And, you know, it really goes through the whole evolution of where we are today. And I told someone the other day and they asked about, what do you think about going? It's one of those things where I don't know concerning how old I am now. I'm 52 years old. Now, I take a look back at where we were in terms of technology and exploration and so forth. I was born right around the time man walked on the moon. And when man walked on the moon, and you take those, like the Apollo missions and so forth, the iPhone had more technological capabilities than what they had on that whole, that whole mission. And I take a look at my grandfather, who was born in 1902. He went from driving a horse and carriage to a car to put himself through college, to never going to law school, passing the bar, being a judge on the Missouri Supreme Court, and becoming a pilot and flying multiple planes before he passed away. When you look about where do we know where we are today and where we're going to be tomorrow, it's really tough. And the fact is you got to bet on change, technology, and so forth. I mean, I could take all the knowledge in the world I have but things change every single day. You know, for example, we didn't have Google when I was kids. Tonight I looked something up, I just Googled it, I had my answer right away. That's a big change that, you know, our forefathers, people didn't have 10 years ago, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So, you know, when you ask about where we're going to be and how we're going to do it and how it affects change, there's a lot of things that happen. We just don't know how they're going to happen yet. We don't know if a drug's going to come out for cancer is going to cure it. No, they've been doing HIV and all these different things that there's so many different possibilities. The fact is that you have to bet on whatever those possibilities are going to be by through the financial markets. You know, none of us are going to go out and pick that one company because, you know what, if we could, we'd all be trillionaires right now. The fact is you got to go out there and really base what you want to do either through Financially, through IRAs, through report, uh, employed uh, retirement plans and so forth, you kind of got to bet on the future and what's going to happen. It's kind of hard to do. So when Paul about and we talked about your kids and so forth, you know, you got to kind of put your faith in the system and hope that what we've seen in the past replicates moving forward. So talking about beginning investment for people, uh, do you... This is a very generalized question, but do you believe that I feel like a lot more people my age, I'm 31 and I started investing and getting into that like five years ago. And obviously I wish I would have started sooner, but do you think that like stuff like Robin hood, the Robin hood app and other, there's tons of other ones too. Stuff like that. Yeah. There's a bunch. Are those, um, I mean, a good thing for people. Like, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like, and this is just, this is all like anecdotal, just stuff that I've noticed the people around me. I feel like way more people my age are now getting interested and investing. And it's due to the ease of access as to where before it didn't seem that easy or you really had to go out of your way for it. And now there's all these apps and all this technology that allows you to just kind of like throw your money at it and do it. And it almost just seems too easy. And I mean, like, to me, it seems like a good thing, but I'm like, is there a downside to that as well? You know, it's, it's really a great question because when I first started in this business, we had what they called telex machines. And you get a quote, you didn't get information, you didn't get news stories, 
you get facts into your office talking about whatever company's doing whatever, maybe Dell or Pyramid Technologies, Abbott Labs, McDonald's. You relied on what the analysts had to say. And that's where the whole origination of a stockbroker came about was <clears throat> that guy would tell you what stocks to buy and use the broker between the buyer and the seller. Now, <clears throat> with the internet and the possibility of being able to understand things, it's kind of, again, I use that word a double-edged sword, the fact that you can learn a lot of information, but that information doesn't tell you how the financial markets trade or why they trade a certain way. Good news can be bad news, and bad news can be good news. You know, I, Lululemon and CrowdStrike, they had great earnings, raised their guidance, their stocks went down. And then you had other companies out there like TJ, TJX, which owns Marshalls and uh, TJ Maxx, who said, hey, margins were okay. We still dropped earnings, but we managed a little better. We thought their stock went up. So when you look at these things out there and you ask about information, the Robin Hoods and all these things, they're really great because they provide information that you didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. It's how that information is disseminated and how people understand it. I mean, if someone says, hey, Bitcoin's going to go way higher here, blah, 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 and give you a reason to buy it, you know, people are going to go buy it versus understanding how fundamentally Bitcoin works, what it's being used for, and so forth. So I think that if I look at it now, I'm like, there's great things about all of it. I think that the information that you could have is way better than we had 30 years ago, and that information can help you make better decisions. Fair enough. And, you know, when you look at it, like, I mean, I like this weekend, I was pulling up, you know, stocks that I have that I bought on Friday, seeing what happened over the weekend. Was there any announcement made? Was there anything that changed that drove those things up on Friday or down on Friday? You know, we didn't have that access to information years ago. I mean, back when I was first in this business, they would literally send you a book once a week or once a month with stock charts. And you're supposed to take a look at that stock chart back then and see if those things are going higher. Now you have all this technology, all these platforms. You can plot certain stocks, blah, 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 and look at this. And everybody comes better at what they do. And I think that's a good thing because people are more knowledgeable what's going on, and it helps them make better investment decisions. Well, that almost goes back to what you said earlier, is just with technology and how it's changing. And, and, and maybe even so with the market, obviously, with what the questions you asked and all these apps coming out and how everyone has more access to it, I think that's a fair point to say that that's how – nothing's going to be the same as it used to be because in the past three or four years with Robinhood and, and Ameritrade and all these different apps and all these people have access to the stock market, it, it's going to completely change. And it's never going to be the same in my opinion, when you, when you look at it that way and people are basing their information off of, you know, what someone says and invent, whatever. I just think with technology, like you said, Kevin, you have to look at that aspect and the stock market will probably never be the same. I think you will have to be more involved as a beginner and you, you can't just blindly go in there and look and go with the S&P because, you know what, it, like you said, it's it's changing right now. I mean, the S&P is down to where it was when I bought it two years ago. I mean, in, in, yeah. Well, the people who invest in the S&P and back when 2008, 2009 hit, if they had they were in the S&P, it took almost 10 years to get back to break even. Okay, now individual stocks moved up a lot further and a lot faster during that time frame. If you are the ultimate stock picker of all kind, of all time. So, you know, those things happen. But one of the things that I think that you'll realize, though, with the technology and what we have today, it, I think it eliminates a lot more mistakes 
that people were making years ago by just trusting one person and telling them what to do. So do you think like, and this is a question that Jesse had and he wanted me to ask you and it kind of, kind of a good time to ask it. He says, should a CEO's personal business affect the stock of a company that he or she works for referring to Elon Musk? Well, I mean, look, Elon Musk is a whole different animal. He said he felt super bad about things that are going on. You know, what is super bad? Is that a reflection of super bad or does he really feel super bad about things are going? Whereas that he says the Twitter deal is on hold, but it's not really on hold. So I think some of these people who influence where the markets are going, you have to also take at face value and what they're really doing. I mean, look, the guy's a hell of an entrepreneur. He's very smart at what he does, but sometimes his erratic behavior could throw stocks off and what you would do fiscally responsible based on what he says. So I think, you know, you, you have to be a little bit more intelligent about just one person's opinion. And I'm not being arrogant when I say that, but most people are smarter than that. They're going to say, oh, maybe that causes a blip. But the reason that causes a blip because you have these all these algorithms, computer trading systems that pick up what he says and that will trade the market. You know, and that's the other thing that we haven't even talked about yet was it's not just about what you and I like to buy or sell. You have these social media algorithms who look for a certain word usage and that either buys or sells where the Fed comes out with an announcement, whether it's good news or bad news, these these algorithms interpret what they're saying and it'll cause a media reaction up or down. And that throws a lot of things off as well. So and then that's another the volatility of the stock market and how crazy it is. And is it is it almost like a casino in that aspect? Because with what the big short, we had a really good podcast on that with the AMC stocks and stuff like that. Like those are other things. Oh, the AMC and GameStop yeah. and all the the Wall wow. Street bet stuff. Those are those are also. I mean, like whenever everyone has access and everyone can come together, that's also another avenue that we have to look into, is it not? Look, I'm going to tell you something. GameStop changed the dichotomy of how people invest and what they don't do, and it made a lot of people a lot more cautious because it's been a, you know. Here's the thing that I will tell people, and this is, I'm going to tell you, this is a conspiracy thing that I've had for years for being on both sides of the equation. Kev, you said you weren't a conspiracy theorist, man. <laughs> this is the difference. Fair enough. Okay. When people could, when institutions could do, institutions can see what they want to do. I mean, they could either buy or sell, but an individual's limit to what he could do. You have a really dynamic market, meaning that if you and I want to go sell a stock short, our brokerage firm won't allow us to do it. But if you go to a market maker, meaning the person who makes the market individual stocks, if they're self-clearing, meaning they clear stocks of their own house, meaning that they handle the buy and the sell transaction without basically giving to someone else to do for them, they control the destiny of a stock. And GameStop showed what happens when the tables were turned. GameStop, you had people who were short, short, short way over what was allowed out there. No one cared about the fact that they were crushing the little guy, meaning that they were short more stock out there than there were shares outstanding. And when the individual fought back and they started buying their stock, these guys were forced to cover stock because there was so many shares short that should never have been short in the first place, but they didn't care because they were an institution. They were forced to buy back and they took big losses you know the funny and ironic thing is these guys complain more as a group and as a whole than any individual ever got noticed for and i think that's a changing part of what we've seen in the stock market 
And that's where the Robin Hoods and some of these other people are effective in a way and not in a way. Because Robin Hood basically t- rolled over in favor of the institutions versus the little guy. Yeah, that really pissed me off. When you look at how they... Because <laughs> they stopped you from buying like, and selling, didn't yeah, they? they, they yeah, no, they, yeah, they stopped, they stopped you from buying. You could, you, could, you could sell, but you couldn't yeah. buy. Yeah. Again, that shows you how institutions have so much more control of what this market does. And whether it's good or bad, they control the individual... Like you and I, they control you a lot more. And I've been on both sides. I've managed hedge funds, managed money, trader, institutional trader. And I know both sides of the equation. And it really showed the diversity between what you and I want as an individual versus what a company wants, a fund, and a Berkshire Hathaway, wherever it might be. It shows you that they have all the control in the market, no matter how much you're right. It shows no matter how much they want to be wrong or right, they control what you do. And that's why the market's always going to be lopsided. When you ask about what individuals want, they want to buy or sell, it really comes down to what does the institution want to do. Goldman Sachs got a lot of trouble in 2008, 2009, 2010. While they were telling their retail people to buy mortgage-backed securities, they were selling them at the same time. Basically, they're taking their institutions out. And they were parking all those losses onto the individual. That's why they had to pay massive fines. Same thing, Bank of America and so forth. It really basically showed that, hey, you know, it's not a fair process no matter how much we say it is. And that's what makes it hard when you look at like Bitcoin, for example. You know, years ago, I was managing a Bitcoin fund. And these huge Bitcoin exchanges, what they would do is they had what they call an order book, meaning that they showed where all the orders were. And they had all the control in the world because it's an unregulated platform. They could they could knock it all the way down, fill these orders on the way down for losses, turn around and rail it back up so that both sides would lose and they would win. And that's why you see all this regulation coming on right now of cryptocurrencies. I know this is kind of off the path. No, no, you're fine. Huh? But but you're seeing like a lot of regulations coming in because over the years, you could see where markets have taken advantage of and how they're taking advantage, whether it be bank sheets, bulletin boards, cryptocurrencies, whether it be options, whether it be futures. You know, it, there's always a loophole someone finds. It's just a matter of how long it takes everybody else to figure out what they're doing. That brings everything you just talked about with the with the Wall Street bets, the GameStop thing, the the you know Goldman Sachs and the big the hedge funds controlling them. What was the what was the big one with the I kept hearing about all the time with the whole GameStop thing. Capital, what, what was it called? I can't, it doesn't matter. Anyways, I wanted to ask, I know we're trying to avoid the whole conspiracy theory thing and stick with more of the facts, but I did have a question, and I'm going to try to word this correctly. I had this thing that, and this is completely opinion, all conspiracy and all that, but I remember talking about it with Jesse and Paul several months ago um, about how the fact that due to Robin Hood, and other apps like that that we discussed earlier, due to the ease of access for individuals to now invest instead of just the big hedge funds and stuff, and also with the whole GameStop thing happening and us seeing how that works when individuals do invest. Once again, very much conspiracy theory, but I have this personal feeling that with them having kind of, not control of the market, but like you said, it's lopsided, that even though now everybody is able to invest, it's going to be harder to earn. Like as to where if I were to invest years and years ago, it was easier because not everybody was doing it. 
But now that everybody is able to do it, the lopsided thing, you know, the hedge funds taking advantage of that and kind of muddying the waters or writing the rules themselves. It's going to go in their favor. Exactly. To where like now that like, oh, all the individuals can invest, but they're not going to earn what they could have earned because we're going to keep it this way on purpose. Like I said, very conspiracy theory, but I just kind of wanted your input or your take on that. Well, I'm a, yeah, honestly, I don't think it really goes to the conspiracy side of it. It's the fact that hedge funds, mutual funds, big money institutions, they've always controlled the market no matter what. You know, we'd like to think that we could make a difference. But even GameStop, you know, even though it ran higher, look what they did. They crushed it straight back down once all the dust settled. You know, it's it's a hard thing out there because institutional money will always be the dominant factor in whatever security you're trading, whether it be stocks, ETFs, options, futures, cryptos. And, you know, you look at what, what they're doing out there is the fact is you just got to be on the right side. And sometimes you write it up, sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you go down the short and you're right. But the bottom line is, is that these institutions will always be the dominant player no matter what because they have the leverage. For example, I'm going to use something completely different than we're talking about. Look at the diamond business. You know, De Beers, they control 90% of the diamonds. So they know exactly when to push prices and down prices. That's why they're always the biggest buyers on, you know, these conflict diamonds, other diamonds they find and so forth around the world is because they have to set that market. Now you look at cryptocurrencies, you talk about conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. The fact is there's only a finite amount of cryptocurrency available. And so when everybody was running cryptos up to the 20,000 and they, then they came rocketing down, the retail investor was buying it. But then when top guess what it was the institutional investors shorting it shorting it jamie diamond from jp morgan came out and said bitcoin was worthless guess what you know the biggest owner of bitcoin is right now jp morgan citibank so these very people who said it was not worth anything they come on and they buy it all up and guess what now they control it they can really push the market higher or lower so and i'm not curious when i say that it's the fact is is demand and supply and who who controls it and, you know, whether it be a conspiracy theory or not, if you could own 90% of the value of something, you know what? You, you control it, you know, whether it goes up or down. Has it always, just has it always been the case? Has, sorry, Kevin, to interrupt you, but has that always been the case in the stock market? Or I, I guess my next question no. would be, be, is it in 1971, whenever we stopped backing the dollar with gold, is that when it started? Because I feel like a lot of uh, problems started happening when we stopped backing no, the dollar with I'll gold. Tell you- not to interrupt you, but when it's when when it all started, when we got rid of the uh, the gold standard, and that goes way back to when we created the Federal Reserve. Okay, the Federal Reserve basically came in and we got rid of the gold standard, which was a value that was based around the world. And the Federal Reserve said, "Hey, we're going to base it on the dollar value, and the dollar value is not a great thing because you could only make so much gold, so forth. But you could print dollar after dollar and go to the printing press and make it." So if you take a look at where the, the, the original dollar was that was printed out in the uh, reserve versus where it is now, it's depreciated 99% of the value from where we started because they printed so much money. You know, and that's why you look at the value of what we call, you know, just currency in the United States and other countries, the pound, the sterling, you go to the euro, you go to the yen, you go to, you know, all these different things around the world. But the bottom line is, and I'm going to go back to what I was just saying about Bitcoin, is there's a finite amount. 
And so there's a push for cryptocurrencies right now because no matter what you do, you can't make more of something that's not. So as time evolves right now, I think they're going to see a lot of this whole dollar-based society, whether it be here in the United States or we use the dollar in Panama as their currency in different places or whether it be foreign currencies. We're gonna, we're, that's going to change over the years. So I think the value of what we see today 20, 30 years from now, it might be completely different because they might come for the universal digital currency where you can't manipulate like they do now. I still think it's funny that like, and I'm way, I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but I'm, I, I laugh at the fact that you take the federal reserve and they're like, Hey, we're going to get once again, grossly oversimplifying, but Hey, let's get rid of the, the whole gold thing. Let's base it on, let's base it on this dollar. Let's base it on the dollar bill. And this has a, you know, this has the value or whatever, when they're literally the ones in control that print it and stuff. And everybody was like, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. I mean, you're taking a currency like Bitcoin, right? It has, you know, here's what was really interesting. You know, I'm a stock guy, as we all know, in this conversation for a very long time. And we started creating these algorithms within our companies that were basically taking data based on past performance and predicting where things are going to go in the future. So when we took the same amount of data and we laid it over the history of Bitcoin, we saw with the volatility how much Bitcoin can move or up or down. And it was a greater return than anything we've ever seen. Now, okay, that was the first part of it. Now I look at Bitcoin too. The first one I looked at it, you know, all the guys who worked with me were like, this thing's just crazy. There's no value to Bitcoin. And then when I really looked into Bitcoin, I thought about it. I'm like, you know, Bitcoin is something that we didn't think about. And that's stability worldwide. And now you go back to what you just said about gold. You know, everybody knew the price of gold. Okay, well, we had the gold standard. Everybody knew in, in London, Italy, you know, South America. Africa. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing. I'm using countries into continents at this point, I know. But everybody knew what that value was. And so you had to value stuff minus or plus, whatever that was, depending on the world you were in. Now, with Bitcoin, I looked at it. I'm like, okay, this is horrible. It's not worth anything. And being an old Wall Street guy, I'm like, this is complete shit. I wouldn't ever own it. Then I started looking at like global and economic news. Okay, you have a coup in Africa where one government says, hey, you know what, we're defeated, and a new government comes in, and all that paper money is all of a sudden gone, and we create a new dollar, a new system. Just like going back to when we had the Civil War. You know, we had the money in the South and the money in the North, and when the North defeated the South, that money was irrelevant. You know, that Confederate money was basically, was worth something, became overnight not worth anything. And then we still see, believe it or not, that global uncertainties worldwide depending on these third world countries, what you call them second world countries and so forth, even with Russia and Ukraine, you know, this could change where the value of whatever dollar in whatever country it might change this war is going to be. So you look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a value worldwide. And now the one thing you find in all these countries, whether good, bad, wherever they might be, there's cellular service, there's a phone, there's access to certain things. So you could take money that, in your current, you, you could buy right now in Nigeria versus in Canada, United States, so forth. That's the same value in a matter of seconds. You could execute a transaction that's going to give you that same amount, of, whether it be from Bitcoin to cash or cash to Bitcoin. That gives us stability the dollar doesn't have or the euro or these other things around the world because it's instant. And the fact is, it's digital. You can't manipulate the price, meaning that. 
you know with that transaction on Bitcoin, that blockchain, you can see every transaction that's been stored. And I'm not even going to a little extrapolate further is the banking system has been using blockchain for the last 20 years, but they don't really talk about the, what they, why they use blockchain. They use blockchain so that way they can't rewrite over the data transaction and money transaction. That's how they keep precise numbers. So, you know, there's a, there's a need to how all this changes moving forward. And we're going to see that in our generation, your generation. You know, you take a look at someone who's 80 is never going to invest in Bitcoin, but you have the guy who's 15. Guess what? You know, he's buying Bitcoin. My son, he was modulating games for game uh, for Xbox or PlayStation years ago. He's getting paid in Bitcoin. That Bitcoin that was worth 100 bucks for him doing that. Look at the value now. It's worth 30,000. So as time goes on, we're going to see how these things change. And it's hard to predict, especially seeing that modern modernization of global, you know, the global economy itself and how things from digitalization to paper currency, these are all going to make a big difference in moving forward. So going back to this whole conversation is that you have to adapt to whatever's happening now, whether it be the S&P 500 companies come with new products, whether it be inflation, non-inflation, whether it be higher oil prices, whether it be cryptocurrencies. You know, there's a direction that all this stuff's moving forward. And you have to be at that point in your life where you can adapt with those things. And if you do, you're going to do really well. So going back to what Paul said about the S&P 500, hey, it's where it was two years ago when I started, Gil. Who knows when the next two years is going to be because that S&P 500 is going to rebalance to whatever the biggest companies are. And those biggest companies are the ones who make the most amount of money. Yeah. So then at that point, I guess it's still a safe investment. But <laughs> I know we're, we're kind of at the end of the hour, Carl. I know you didn't get a chance to get a question to me. And if there's anything that throughout your throughout the podcast that you listen to or any questions that you might have for Kevin, at least one <laughs> to get in there. No, I jump back to nothing. But Kevin, is there a housing bubble? You know, it's funny. You say that I, I moved to Kansas City from South Florida. So if anybody knows a housing bubble better than me, I, I don't know who it is going to be because I watched my price from the time I bought my house in Palm Beach, Florida, double to back down below where it is to almost up 140 percent of what I bought it for today. This is in the last 12, 13 years. So, you know, the housing bubble comes it's a supply and demand thing. And I always look at where the hottest areas are. And month by month, I look at Palm Beach. That's the most expensive real estate in the United States. I look at Las Vegas. I look at L.A. I look at Scottsdale. You know, I look at certain areas. And what I've seen in the last two months, there's more supply right now. And there's been the last two years. Does that mean it's a housing bubble? No. We have a lot of policy. We have policy and restrictive measures today that we didn't have in 2004, 2005, 6, leading up to that real estate crash. Do we do we have houses inflated? Yeah, Johnson County's thirty percent overinflated compared, you know, these studies that you read. Does it mean they're going to go down thirty percent? No, no. But it shows the, in the, overinflated values of places around the United States. You know, if you look at Johnson County, since we're all here, you know, the the, the average real estate went up one to three percent a year for twenty years. In the last two years, we've had over forty percent increase in value. What's changed in the economy over the last two years increased the 40% value of your home? And that's the realization that people are going to come up, you know, come from. But, you know, one thing that we don't have that we've had in the past is we had excess supply. We don't have that yet. We don't have excess supply to offset the needs. 
So when you look at like these companies like Toll Brothers, KVH and so forth, you know, they're trading like historic like levels of like literally trading two or three times the company value, which is unheard of in the stock market. We don't know going forward if they're going to hit a brick wall. You know, we're discounting the value of these home builders so much right now, anticipating the worst. But maybe we don't get the worst. Maybe we do. Um, but you can't tell me that a house is worth 40 percent more than it was two years ago just because there's a supply issue. Because when right. that supply issue comes out, that's going to show you what the true value is. And again, it's one of those hindsight things. We don't know where we're going to be until we're past this point and we can look back. And, you know, as much as people want to predict, we don't really know. And we will know in two or three years. But the overall consensus is, hey, there's still only half the amount of homes that are wanted right now for what's needed. It's a matter of interest rates. Do interest rates keep going hot? People say, hey, you know, I could have bought a house at 2.87%. Now I'm at 5.75%. That's a double over the last four months. Do I really need this house or I want to wait and see what happens? And those are all the unknowns that you know, all these people jockeying around with futures, with options and so forth and shorting stock. No one really knows that what's going to happen. And it's just a matter of time. So either someone's going to be really right and say there's a housing bubble or someone's going to be really wrong and bet on the wrong side of it. Fair enough. Much appreciated. Yeah. You got any, any lasting thoughts, Johnny? Um, my final thing is just a very, very general, like, I think we can, and I don't want to speak for you, Kevin, but I, th- and I'll, you know, I'll get your input in just a second. I think we can all agree that if you're, if you're talking to someone young, you know, early twenties or anything like that, that their best bet is, you know, to stick with the stock market, to stick with stocks, ETF, mutual funds, all that, like, Putting your money in the bank isn't going to get it because you're going to lose because of inflation, you know, or yeah. And then like, you know, buying gold isn't going to do it. That's not coming back anytime soon or anything like that in comparison to just, I think that the the safe route, would you agree, Kevin, would be, you know, invest your money in stocks, figure it out. If you don't want to do it yourself, get a financial advisor, get them involved, whatever. But, you know, invest for your future is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the the proven, the proven way to financial success is gone through the financial markets being the stock market. I mean, the bond market's not producing enough yield to basically suppress what inflation is right now. Money, the bank's not going to do it. I mean, you're really, your, your options are very limited. And I think that's why you see a lot of the uh, funds and so forth. They just keep pressing forward. No matter what happens, they know they can't sit in cash. The mandates don't allow them to sit in cash because cash is not, you know, you always say cash is king, cash is a position, but cash is not a position when you're losing money. So that going back to the original conversation about being strategic about how you invest your money is more important now than probably ever. Because if we do have uncertain times moving forward and people really don't know what to do, they really got to find those particular companies could weather the storm. And it's going to make a lot of people's jobs a lot harder than it's been in the last several years. You know, for the guy, like I said, the guy just buys a mutual fund every single month, hoping that goes higher. That's not going to be the success story that we hear about. Success story is going to be about the one who found those, you know, those rare gems, you know, that need on the haystack that outperformed everything by tenfold, whether it be a Regeneron pharmaceutical, you know, you know that years ago was trading at 10, it's over 600. Or you could have bought Google in 90, 1999 at $90, and that's split four times you know, 23, 24, 25, 26, 3,000, depending on what time of the year it is. 
So the things that we see out there right now, you have to put your faith in what technology, what companies are doing, and really bet on that versus trying to bet on, you know, each macro thing that's going to happen going forward in the economy. Well, comment. I greatly appreciate your time, and I don't know. I don't know if you're like on social media or anything like that. But if you have any plugs or anything you want to do right now, that's completely fine. But um, other than that, man, I greatly appreciate your time. A little bit over the hour, been a great podcast, man. A lot of information. My brain's like going like going 100 miles an hour right now. So, <laughs> well, the good thing about the financial markets, there's always something new every single day. Just when you think you can't learn more or can't be any worse, it gets to that point. So all the ups and all the downs. You just have to stay that that common course and know where you want to be 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. For sure, man. Uh, it, it seems just anything that I invest in, it, it always goes down. And then whenever I sell it, it goes up instantly. Don't sell it. That's the thing. Don't. But I don't. But, and, well, I, and, I, and, I don't and I don't. But when I do, like, there's been a few times where I've sold. Like this one particular time I held on to Loopring as a cryptocurrency. I bought it at a certain price. And forever I held it. Forever. For like over a year or whatever it was. And then I sold, and then it went up over 100%. Well, that ain't forever, by the way. A year isn't you, that long. I, I, anytime that I sell, I'm serious. I don't know. So I said don't sell. But anytime that I do, the stock goes up almost instantly. It's weird. It's the weirdest shit ever. I'm going to tell you something, Paul. That happens for everybody. On Friday, I had a company called Scorpion uh, Tankers. Okay, The stock was down. I had a great profit on it. I sold it at, I think, 34 30 34 30 It hit $36 after I sold it. So... You know, the only good thing is I bought options on it to limit my downside, but, and I made up probably maybe two thirds of the loss. If I just would have held the stock back, so it wasn't a complete loss. But, you know, no matter what you do, it's like, there's Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong. You know, and that's the thing about the stock market is, is that, you know, you, you never know if you're going to be right or wrong. It's not about a day or two, it's about the long term. And that's why you look at some of the greatest investors, Warren Buffett. You know, you think he cares about what American Express does or Chevron or, you know, Coca-Cola? No, they've been holdings for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and you just have to ride with it, you know. And it's, again, it's that stock market picker mentality. If you have a good company, you hold a good company. And, you know, sometimes that's the hardest thing to do is just, like, hold on to something you want to have conviction in. Because when it goes down, you doubt yourself. Then it goes up. Then you think, okay, i got to buy it back, and it goes down. The fact is you just buy it, you hold it, and say, this is what I want to do. No person can ever time the market 100%. No automated trading system, no algorithm will ever do that for you. But when, so come, when you have time you on your buy. side and you're 20 years old or 30 years old and you can invest, it's going to set you buy up for stuff success. And you, when you're buy older. stuff you believe in and then just hold it. Yeah. But that's why when people buy the S&P 500, that's why very few fund managers just beat the S&P 500 year in, year out. It's probably in the last 20 years, maybe 10% of the fund managers out there ever beat the S&P 500. Now, if you're timing it year by year and you got lucky, you could beat that. But overall, the number one guy was a guy named Bill Miller out of Lake Mason. I used to work with him back in my day. And the guy's successful. You know, it's funny. He was on TV like recently and he, you know, he's a big holder of cryptocurrencies. But even before that, three or four months ago, he was talking about two stocks. And they're Tupperware, which we all know Tupperware. It was like 17, 18 bucks a share. Guess what? Here's a legendary investor. You know where Tupperware is? Like six bucks a share. So no matter how right or you could be wrong, it's not about what happened between three months and now. It's what happens three to six years down the road or nine years, 10 years. And that's why, again, you know, for the average investor who doesn't have the ability to do it, 
Buy the S&P 500. You don't have to worry about rebalancing. It does it for you. You're buying the best companies out there. And if they do great, you're going to do great. If they don't do great, guess what? You're like every, every average person out there as well. It's just a matter of what you rate of return and then going back to that rule of 72, what you want to be. If you know you want to be 10% a year, every 7.2 years, you're going to double your money. If you're happy with 6%, and then take a look at these vehicles that you're looking at, what the average return has been, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you can make strategic and sound investments and not blow yourself up at the same time. Rock on, man. Well, um, I know once Jesse gets back in the groove, groove of things, I would love to have you on again if, you know, this is months away. I'd love to have you on again when, when he joins because I'm sure Jesse would have a lot of good questions. Jesse would well, be so. all about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I mean, I know I probably ramble on a little bit. and You know, I have a passion for what I do. I've seen a lot of different things out there and, you know, and trying to cram everything in an hour and what you believe it's really tough to do. And one of the things that I've realized is, you know, patience and, you know, and perseverance is the best way to handle the markets, no matter what goes in front of you. And we could talk about all these things, inflation, oil prices, stock prices, Russia, Ukraine. We could talk about China, Taiwan. We could talk about just prices in general and so forth. But, you know, the, the best strategy is the long-term strategy. Mark on. I'm all for it, man. Well, Kevin, I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining Talk Junkies, man. I'm sure I'll see you here here within a week or two, man. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep, Thanks right back you. at you, my man. Thanks, Kevin. All right, talk to you all later. All Cheers. Right, bye-bye. Some people hang up, some don't. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Kevin, uh, I didn't get his... I mean, I know his last name. I don't know how to pronounce it right, but we'll just leave it at that. I hope you guys like the show. A lot of information. Information overload. It went really fast. I've really got to pee. <laughs> <laughs> That was good stuff. I like I like that. I like talking about it. And it's great hearing from someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So where most of the time I'm like going off the very tiny little facts and pulling shit out of my ass and being like this and this makes sense together. And Yeah, when you have someone on who knows what they're talking about and then it makes sense. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. My brain hurts. So does mine. <laughs> Which I is a good it. thing. Thank you, Kevin, for that, man. Oh, yeah. Um, the best thing you guys can do, man, I'm not saying that this is financial advice in any way, shape, or form, because it's not. It's just a YouTube video where we're just giving you knowledge. You take that knowledge however you want. Um, hit the subscribe button. Hit the bell notification to our junkies out there. Stay fly. And ring the bell. <laughs> Paul's got a piss.